Chapter Three, Part Two of The Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Three: The Apotheosis of Sammy Durgan, Part Two. There is an official record for cross-country mileage registered in the name of someone whose name is not Sammy Durgan, but it is not accurate. Sammy Durgan holds it, and it was far up on the mountainside that he finally crossed the tape and collapsed breathless and gasping on a tree stump. He sat there for quite a while, jabbing at his streaming face with the sleeve of his jumper, and there was trouble in Sammy Durgan's eyes and plaint in his voice when at last he spoke. Twenty-five dollars reward,' said Sammy Durgan wistfully, "'and twas as good as in my pocket, and now it's gone.' "'Tis hard luck, cruel hard luck, it is that.' Sammy Durgan's eyes roved around the woods about him and grew thoughtful. "'I was minded at the time,' said Sammy Durgan, "'that twas not the right kind of an emergency, "'and when he hears of it, Regan will be displeased. "'Now what'll I do? "'Twill do no good to return to the section shanty, "'for they'll be telegraphing Donovan to fire Sammy Durgan. "'That's me, fire Sammy Durgan.' "'Tis trouble dogs me in cruel hard luck, "'and all I'm asking for is a steady job and a chance.' Sammy Durgan relapsed into mournful silence and contemplation for a spell, and then his face began to clear. Sammy Durgan's optimism was like the bobbing cork. "'Tis another streak of cruel hard luck, of bitter cruel hard luck I've had this day. "'But am I down and out for the likes of that?' inquired Sammy Durgan defiantly of himself. "'I am not,' replied Sammy Durgan buoyantly to Sammy Durgan. "'Tis not the first time I've been fired, and did I not read that there's uh, McMurtry begging for men up there at the Gap? And him being a new man and unknown to me, tis a job sure. Tis only my name might stand in the way, for tis likely will be remembered in his hearing on account of the bit of trouble down yonder.' Uh, but tis the job I care for and not the name. I'll be working for McMurtry tomorrow morning. I will that. And what's more, added Sammy Durgan, beginning to blink fast, I'll show em yet. Mariah and Regan and the rest of them. Once in every man's life he gets his chance. Mine ain't come yet. I thought it had today, but I was wrong. But it'll come. You wait. I'll show em some day. Sammy Durgan lost himself in meditation. After a while he spoke again. "'I'm not sure about the law,' said Sammy Durgan, "'but on account of the fellow that the bullet hit, apart from McMurtry taking note of it, "'twould be as well anyway if I changed my name temporarily till the temper of all concerned is cooled down a bit.' Sammy Durgan rose from the stump. "'I'll start west,' said Sammy Durgan, "'and get a lift on the first way freight before the word is out.' I'm thinking they'll be asking for Sammy Durgan down at Big Cloud. And they were. It was quite true. Down at headquarters they were earnestly concerned about Sammy Durgan. Sammy Durgan had made no mistake in that respect. Fire Sammy Durgan, wired the roadmaster to the nearest station for transmission by first train to Pat Donovan, the section boss, and he got this answer back the next morning. I.P. Spears, Roadmaster, Big Cloud. Sammy Durgan missing. P. Donovan. Missing. That was it. J. 
just that, nothing more, as though the earth had opened and swallowed him up. Sammy Durgan had disappeared. And while Carleton grew red and apoplectic over the claim sheet for damages presented by the moving picture company, and Reagan fumed and tugged at his scraggly brown moustache at thought of the damage to his rolling stock, Sammy Durgan was just missing, that was all, just missing. Nobody knew where Sammy Durgan had gone. Nobody had seen him. Station agents, operators, road bosses, section bosses, construction bosses, and everybody else were instructed to report. And they did. They reported nothing. Regan even went so far as to ask Mrs. Durgan. Is it here to taunt me, Yazar? screamed Mrs. Durgan bitterly, and slammed the door in the little master mechanic's face. I guess observed Regan to himself as he gazed at the uncommunicative door panels. I guess maybe the neighbors have been neighborly, hm? But I guess, too, we're rid of Sammy Durgan at last. And I don't know but what that comes pretty near square in accounts for our window glass and about a million other incidentals. Only, added the little master mechanic, screwing up his eyes as he walked back to the station, only it would have been more to my liking to have got my hands on him first and got rid of him after. But Regan and Carleton and Mrs. Durgan and the Hill Division generally were not rid of Sammy Durgan, far from it. For a week he was missing, and then one afternoon young Hinton, of the Division Engineer's staff, strolled into the office, nodded at Carleton, and grinned at the master mechanic, who was tilted back in a chair with his feet on the window sill. "'I dropped off this morning to look over the new grading work at the Gap,' said Hinton casually. And I thought you might be interested to know that McMurty's got a man working for him up there by the name of Timmy O'Toole. Doesn't interest me, said Regan blandly, chewing steadily on his blackstrap. Try and spring it on the super, Hinton. He always bites. Who's Timmy O'Toole? smiled Carleton. Hinton squinted at the ceiling. Sammy Dorgan, said Hinton casually. There wasn't a word spoken for a minute. Regan lifted his feet from the window sill and lowered his chair legs softly down to the floor as though he were afraid of making a noise, and the smile on Carleton's face sort of faded away as though a blight had withered it. What was that name? said Carleton presently in a velvet voice. Timmy O'Toole, said Hinton. Carlton's hand reached out, kind of as though on its own initiative, kind of as though it were just a habit, for a telegraph blank. But Regan stopped him. It wasn't often that the fat, good-natured little master mechanic was vindictive, but there were times when even Regan's soul was overburdened. "'Wait,' said Regan, with ferocious grimness. "'Wait! I'll make a better job of it than that, Carlton.' I'm going up the line myself tomorrow morning on number three, and I'll drop off at the gap. Timmy O'Toole now, is it? I'll make him sick. Regan clenched his pudgy fist. When I'm through with him, he'll never have to be fired again, not on this division. Still looking for an emergency to rise to, hm? Well, I'll accommodate him. He'll run up against the hottest emergency tomorrow morning he ever heard of. And Regan was right. That was exactly what Sammy Durgan did, only it wasn't quite the sort of emergency that Regan... But just a moment till the line's clear. There go the cautionaries against us. If it had been any other kind of a switch, it would never have happened. 
let that be understood from the start, and how it ever came to be left on the main line when modern equipment was installed is a mystery, except perhaps that as it was never used, it was therefore never remembered by anybody. Nevertheless, there it stood, an old weather-beaten two-throw stub switch of the vintage of the ark. Two-throw, mind you, when a one-throw switch, even in the days of its usefulness, would have answered the purpose just as well, better for that matter. No modern drop-handle, interlocking safety device about it, not at all. A handle sticking straight out like a sore thumb that could creak around on a semicircular guide, with a rusty pin dangling from a rusty chain to lock it, if some itinerant section hand didn't forget to jab the pin back into the hole if it had the habit of worming its way out of it. It stood about a quarter of the way down the grade of the gap, which is to say about half a mile from the summit, a deserted sentinel on guard over a deserted spur that in the old construction days had been built in a few hundred yards through a soft spot in the mountainside for camp and material stores. As for the gap itself, it was not exactly what might be called a nice piece of track. Officially, the grade is an average of 4.2, Practically, it is likened to a balloon dissension by means of a parachute. It begins at the east end and climbs up in a wriggling, twisting way, hugging gray rock walls on one side and opening a canyon on the other that, as you near the summit, would make you catch your breath even to look over the edge. It is a sheer drop. And also the right-of-way is narrow, very narrow, just clearance on one side against the rock walls, and a whole canyon full of nothingness at the edge of the other rail, and... But here's our clearance now. McMurtry's camp was at the summit, and McMurtry's work, once the camp was fairly established and stores in, was to shave the pate of the summit, looking to an amelioration in the gap's grade average, that is, its official grade average. But on the morning that Regan left Big Cloud on number three, the work was not very far along. Only the preliminaries accomplished, so to speak, which were a siding at the top of the grade with storehouse and camp shanties flanking it. And on the siding that morning, just opposite the storehouse, which it might be remarked in passing, had already received its first requisition of blasting materials for the barbering of the grade that was to come, a hybrid collection of Polacks, Swedes, and Hungarians were emptying an oil tank car and discharging supplies from some flats and boxcars, while on the main line track a red-haired man with leathery face was loading some grade stakes on a handcar. McMurtry, tall, lanky, and irascible, shouted at the red-haired man from a little distance up the line. Hey, O'Toole! The red-haired man paid no attention. O'Toole! It came in a bellow from the road boss. You there, O'Toole, you wooden-headed mud-picker! Are you deaf? Sammy Durgan looked up to get a line on the disturbance and caught his breath. By glory, whispered Sammy Durgan to himself. I was near forgetting. Tis me he's yelling at. O'Toole! Yes, sir, shouted Sammy Durgan hurriedly. Oh, you woke up, have you? shrilled McMurty. Well, when you've got those stakes loaded, take them down the grade and leave them by the old spur. And take it easy on the grade and mind your brakes going down, understand? Yes, sir, said Sammy Durgan. 
Sammy Durgan finished loading his handcar and, hopping aboard, started to pump it along. At the brow of the grade he passed the oil tank car and nodded sympathetically at a round-faced, tow-headed Swede who was snatching a surreptitious drag at his pipe in the lee of the car. Like one other memorable morning in Sammy Dugan's career, it was sultry and warm with that same leisurely feeling in the air. Sammy Durgan and his handcar slid down the grade for about an eighth of a mile, rounded a curve that hid Sammy Durgan and the construction camp one from the other, continued on for another hundred yards, and came to a stop. Sammy Durgan got off. On the canyon side there was perhaps room for an agile mountain goat to stretch its legs without falling off, but on the other side, if a man squeezed in tight enough and curled his legs Turk fashion, the rock wall made a fairly comfortable backrest. "'Twas easy,' he said, "'to take it on the grade,' said Sammy Durgan reminiscently. "'And why not?' Sammy Durgan composed himself against the rock wall and produced his black cutty. "'Tis a better job than track-walking.' said Sammy Durgan judicially, though more arduous. Sammy Durgan smoked on. But some day, said Sammy Durgan momentously, I'll have a better one. I will that. It's a long time in coming, maybe, but it'll come. Once in every man's life a chance comes to him. Tis patience that counts, that and rising to the emergency that proves the kind of man you are as some day I'll prove to Mariah and Regan and the rest of them. Sammy Durgan smoked on. It was a warm summer morning, sultry even, as has been said, but it was cool and shady against the rock ledge. Peace fell upon Sammy Durgan drowsily. Also, presently the black cutty fell, or rather slipped down into Sammy Durgan's lap without disturbing Sammy Durgan. A half-hour, three-quarters of an hour passed, and McMurtry, far up at the extreme end of the construction camp, let a sudden yell out of him and started on a mad run toward the tank car and the summit of the grade as a series of screeches in seven different varieties of language smote his ears and a great burst of black smoke rolling skyward met his startled gaze. But fast as he ran, the Polacks, Swedes, and Hungarians were faster, pipe-smoking under discharging oil tank cars and in the shadow of a dynamite storage shed they were accustomed to. But to the result, a blazing oil tank car shooting a flame against the walls of the dynamite shed, they were not. They were only aroused to action with their lives in peril, and they acted promptly and earnestly, too earnestly. Someone threw the main line open, and the others crowbarred the blazing car like mad along the few feet of siding to get it away from the storage shed, bumped it on the main line, and then their bars began to lose their purchase under the wheels. The grade accommodatingly took a hand. McMurtry, tearing along toward the scene, yelled like a crazy man, Blotter! Block the wheels, you duke! His voice died in a gasp. Do you hear? He screamed as he got his breath again, Block the wheels! And the Polacks, the Swedes, the Hungarians, and the Whatnots, scared stiff, screeched and jabbered as they watched the tank car, gaining speed with every foot it traveled, sail down the grade. And McMurtry, too late to do anything, stopped dead in his tracks, his face ashen. He pulled his watch, licked dry lips, and kind of whispered to himself, "'Number three'll be on the foot of the grade now,' whispered McMurtry, and licked his lips again. "'Oh, my 
God! Meanwhile, down the grade around the bend, Sammy Durgan yawned, sat up, and cocked his ear summitwards. Now what the devil are them crazy foreigners yelling about? complained Sammy Durgan unhappily. Tis always the same with them, like a cage full of screeching cockatoos they are. But being foreigners, maybe they can't help it. Tis their nature to yell without provocation, and— Sammy Durgan's ear caught a very strange sound that mingled the clack of fast-revolving wheels as they pounded the fish-plates with a roar that hissed most curiously. And then Sammy Durgan's knees went loose at the joints and wobbled under him. Trailing a dense black canopy of smoke wrapped in a sheet of flame that spurted even from the trucks, the oil-tank car lurched around the bend and plunged for him, and for once Sammy Durgan thought very fast. There was no room to let it pass. On one side there was just nothing, barring a precipice, and on the rock side, no matter how hard he squeezed back from the right-of-way, there wasn't any room to escape that spurting flame that even in its passing would burn him to a crisp. And with one wild squeak of terror, Sammy Durgan flung himself at his handcar, and pushing first like a maniac to start it, sprang aboard. Then he began to pump. There were a hundred yards between the bend and the scene of Sammy Durgan's siesta. Only the tank car had momentum, a whole lot of it, and Sammy Durgan had not. By the time Sammy Durgan had the handcar started, the hundred yards was twenty-five, and the monster of flame and smoke behind him was traveling two feet to his one. Sammy Durgan pumped for his life. He got up a little better speed, but the tank car still gained on him. Down the grade he went, the handcar rocking, swaying, lurching, and up and down on the handle, madly, frantically, desperately, wildly went Sammy Durgan's arms, shoulders, and head. His hat flew off, and his red hair sort of stood straight up in the wind, and his face was like chalk. Down he went, faster and faster, and the handcar, reeling like a drunken thing, took a curve with a vicious slew, and the off-wheels hung in air for an instant while Sammy Durgan bellowed in panic, then found their base again and shot along the straight. And faster and faster behind him, on wings of fire it seemed, spitting flame tongues, vomiting its black clouds of smoke like an inferno, roaring like a mighty furnace in blast, came the tank car. It was initial momentum and mass against Sammy Durgan's muscles on a handcar pump handle, and the race was not to Sammy Durgan. He cast a wild glance behind and squeaked again, and his teeth began to go like castanets as the hot breath of the thing fanned his back. "'Tis me finish!' wheezed and stuttered Sammy Durgan through bursting lungs and chattering teeth. "'Tis a dead man I am, oh, holy mother! "'Tis a dead man I am!' Ahead and to either side swept Sammy Durgan's eyes like a hunted rat's, and they held fascinated on where the old spur track led off from the main line. But it was not the spur track that interested Sammy Durgan, it was that the rock wall, diverging away from his elbow, as it were, presented a wide and open space. "'It's killed I am anyway,' moaned Sammy Durgan. "'But tis a chance. If maybe I could jump far enough there where there's room to let it pass, I, d I don't know. But tis killed I'll be anyway. Oh, holy mother, but tis a chance. Oh, holy mother!' Hissing in its wind-swept flames, belching its cataract of smoke that lay behind it up the grade like a pall of death, roaring like some insensate demon, the tank car leaped at him five yards away, and screaming now in a paroxysm of terror that had his soul in clutch, crazed with it, blind with it, Sammy Durgan jumped, blindly, just before he reached the spur. 
Like a stone from a catapult, Sammy Durgan went through the air, and with a sickening thud his body crashed full into the old stub switch stand and into the switch handle, whirled around, and he ricocheted a senseless, bleeding, shattered Sammy Durgan three yards away. It threw the switch. The handcar, already over it, sailed on down the main line and around the next bend, climbed up the front end of the 508 that was hauling number three up the grade, smashed the headlight into battered ruin, unshipped the stack, and took final lodgment on the running board, its wheels clinging like tentacles to the 508's bell and sandbox. But the tank car, with a screech of wrenching axles, a frightened, quivering stagger, took the spur, rushed like a berserker, amuck along its length, plowed up sand and gravel and dirt and rock where there were no longer any rails, and toppled over, a spent and buckled thing, on its side. It was a flying switch that they talk of yet on the Hill Division. Number three, suspicious of the handcar, sniffed her way cautiously around the curve, and there passengers, train crew, engine crew, and Tommy Regan made an excited exodus from the train, just as McMurtry, near mad with fear, Swedes, Hungarians, and Polacks stringing out along the right-of-way behind him also arrived on the scene. Who disclaims circumstantial evidence? Regan stared at the burning oil tank up the spur, stared at the bleeding, senseless form of Sammy Durgan, and then he yelled for a doctor. But a medical man amongst the passengers was already jumping for Sammy Durgan, and McMurtry was clawing at the master mechanic's arm, stuttering out the tale of what had happened. And, and if it hadn't been for Timmy O'Toole there, stuttered McMurtry, flirting away the sweat that stood out in great nervous beads on his face, I, oh, it makes me sick to think what would have happened when that tank struck number three. Oh, something would have gone into the canyon, sure. Timmy O'Toole's a... His name's Sammy Durgan, said Regan, kind of absently. I don't give a blamed hoot what his name is, declared McMurtry earnestly. He's a man with grit from his soles up and a head on him to use it with. It was three quarters of an hour ago that I sent him down, so he must have been near the top on his way back when he saw that tank car coming, and he took the one chance there was to try and beat it to the spur here to save number three. And it was so close on him, for it's a cinch he hadn't time to stop, that he had to jump for the switch with about one chance in ten for his own life. See? A blind man could see it, said Regan heavily. But... Sammy Durgan. He reached uncertainly toward his hip pocket for his chewing, and then, with sudden emotion, the big-hearted, fat little master mechanic bent over Sammy Durgan. "'God bless the man!' blurted out Regan, and then to the doctor. "'Will he live?' "'No, oh, yes, I think so,' the doctor answered. "'He's pretty badly smashed up, though.' Sammy Durgan's lips were moving. Regan leaned close to catch the words. "'A steady job,' murmured Sammy Durgan. "'Never get a chance. But some day it'll come. I'll show em, Mariah and Regan and the rest of them.' "'You have, Sammy,' said Regan in a low, anxious voice. "'It's all right, Sammy. It's all right, old boy. Just pull around and you can have any blame thing you want on the Hill Division.' The doctor smiled sympathetically at Regan. He's delirious, you know, he explained kindly. What he says doesn't mean anything. 
Regan looked up with a kind of grim smile. "'Don't it?' inquired Regan softly. Then he cleared his throat and tugged at his scraggly brown moustache, both ends of it. "'That's what I used to think myself,' said the fat little master mechanic, sort of as though he were apostrophizing the distant peaks across the canyon, and not as though he were talking to the doctor at all. "'But I guess—' I guess I know Sammy Durgan better than I did, hm? End of chapter 3